1: Yo, technology, what is it all about? Are you a budding entrepreneur? Do you have an amazing idea that you think could be the beginnings of a very big company but just don't know how to make it happen? Well, you're in luck. Today on Danny in the Valley, we have Jason Kalkanis, who's one of the most active angel investors in the tech world. He's invested in well over 100 companies, including a little one called Uber, way back when no one had ever heard of it and we'll be talking today about what it takes to make it in the tech world and jason is never short of opinions so it should be an interesting conversation let's see what he has to say how many companies have you invented are you invested in currently or have invested?
0: 140, I think, is the latest count. We do 30 a year. So most of my investments, more than half, have come in the last two years. So the the, the velocity is increasing. I think I'll wind up doing 30 this year. And then next year, I'm going to try to target 50. So one a week.
1: And can we talk about your biggest one? Sure. How did you get into Uber?
0: So I knew Travis for, um, gosh, and, and Garrett I knew Garrett for a couple years. I knew Travis from his first Garrett company. Garrett Camp. Yeah. So I knew Garrett Camp just for a couple of years socially. He did something called StumbleUpon, which was a really cool site that drove a lot of traffic to a lot of the blogs that I was operating, like Engadget and Joystick. Uh, so I knew him. Um, and always thought, that's a smart cat. Um, but I knew Travis for a long time uh, since he had Scour, his first peer-to-peer software company that I knew, him, Red Swoosh. So I just happened to run into him at a party He said, you want to see what I'm working on? He showed it to me. I said, can I invest? He said, sure. Um, I brought him to an angel meetup I used to do called Open Angel Forum. And Open Angel Forum was before AngelList, before SeedInvest, before Republic, and all these other crowdfunding sites. Nobody knew who the angels were. So I would just bring 10, 15 angels together, and I'd bring six companies, and I would just email the 10 or 15 angel investors coming and say, what are you investing in? Do you know any companies? And they would each give me one or two. And I pick the seven best they'd present for five minutes each. We'd have hamburgers and beer. And a lot of great companies got funded, including Thumbtack and Uber. Three of the 20 people in the audience invested in Uber at that one. 17 said no.
1: And how much was Uber worth at the time?
0: That round was about $4 million valuation.
1: And Uber is now worth almost seventy billion. Suppose yeah, the, if, you read, I think the, if you the last round of
0: financing was upward in the high sixties or seventy billion, something in that range. Um, if it was trading in the secondary market at forty, fifty, I think uh, it would be selling like hotcakes, uh, probably at that valuation. I mean, you can look at the revenue which they started disclosing, and it's tremendous.
1: So, and you put in twenty-five grand, is that right?
0: Uh, yeah, I put in a small, small bet,
1: and. This was via Sequoia Capital, correct? Well, Sequoia was my
0: LP. So Sequoia had said to a bunch of the Sequoia founders, we'll give you some money. You invest it. We'll split the returns. To which we all said, what's the catch? And they said, there's no catch. Wait, so so
1: they give you the money?
0: They give us the money. You said. We get to choose what we invested in. We can put our own money into, But we're just going to give you free money because you're a CEO of a Sequoia company. We know you're smart because we've already invested in you. And the two early scouts were myself and a gentleman named Sam Altman, who now runs Y Combinator. And Sam and I both had what I would call moderately successful, at best, Sequoia-backed companies. But we both turned out to be now you know, the two most prolific, probably sought-after angel investors on the planet. And so Y Combinator is clearly the most sought-after incubator, having been around for a long time. And I'm probably the most sought-after angel, having established myself as the angel who can provide the most post-investment uh, marketing and platform. So, so how
1: did you get here? It'd be good to just get a bit of your backstory because you're, yeah, actually so from, I was, you're uh, from New York. Correct? I'm from
0: New York, grew up in Brooklyn. My dad's a bartender, owned a bar and a small restaurant, cafe, and my mom a nurse. And I started fixing laser printers and being fascinated with online services in the 80s. Got into it more in the 90s, discovered the internet while I was at college in 1988, 1989. Whoa, whoa. BitNet, ARPANET, it was pretty fascinating to me. And then um, eventually started a magazine called Cyber Surfer, which was about CD-ROMs. It failed. CD-ROMs? Yeah, because wow. CD-ROMs were the yeah. precursor to the internet. Yeah. Um, there was a company called Voyager in New York that was doing interactive experiences. And there was a, a magazine called Blender that came out on CD. And it was just all very interesting for me to watch a computer go from word processor and spreadsheet to, oh my God, we're watching videos, we're hearing sounds, we're playing games. It was just miraculous. And it was all delivered on CDs. But when I saw the internet, I said, holy cow, this is gonna be able to, you don't need to have the CD. You can just get the information. And that was just mind blowing. And so I started Silicon Alley Reporter, which became 70, 80 person company with $12 million in revenue and was a print magazine about the internet Sold that to Dow Jones. Did Weblogs Inc., which was a blogging platform that did Engadget, Autoblog, Joystick. Mark Cuban was our single investor. We sold that to AOL for $30 million 18 months after starting it. So I made my first big payday. And then uh, I started a company called Mahalo, which got very big but then failed. Pivoted to Inside.com. And in that interim time... Oh, I, think,
1: I need to thank you because yeah. I'm on ins, Inside.com's newsletter yeah. company. Yeah. Yep. And I'm on Inside yeah. SF, and through Inside SF, I found out about Hamilton tickets, and I got C. Hamilton. Thank you. Go to you know
0: Inside.com San Francisco. <laughs> and if you're in London, you can go to Inside.com slash London and pre-sign up for the London uh, ah. newsletter. So our idea is we have 25 newsletters at Inside. We're adding one a week. We hope to get to 250 newsletters by verticals like Artificial Intelligence or companies like Apple or Google and just cover unique verticals. Um, we have one for beer. Inside dot com slash beer for people who are in the beer industry. Inside beer. Inside beer for the beer industry. Forty fifty percent open rates on those emails, which is five times the industry average of you know eight nine ten percent. So yeah, email is the great equalizer. I'm working on that company, but in the interim, I just started investing in my friends' companies um, and hit four unicorns in 120 investments. So I became kind of Notable as an investor, and the way it works for angels is you're the, kind of the point guard. You make this early bet and then you bring the ball down the court and then you have these giant you know centers and amazing power forwards who you pass the ball to and hopefully they do a series A, a series B, a series C, and the company uh, gets to victory so I kind of like that position I like being creative and
1: so in a, for our audience in the UK, I guess you'd be kind of like the distributing midfielder you're like a Cesc Fabregas.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't know exactly what you're talking <laughs> about. You're speaking French to me, but if there's a person yes. in soccer or football who brings the ball up court and then sets up the other players to score, that would be me. Right. Um so and you get you super,
1: score through that process.
0: Yeah, it's called an assist, right? But what's very unique about it is you have a very unique relationship with the founders because anybody can bet on Uber when it's in ten cities or three cities it doesn't take much risk to say Uber in three, four, five cities. Why would you bet on Uber? I didn't bet on Uber. I bet on the founder. I bet on Travis. So that's the big secret. So I just finished my book, uh, Angel, which is coming out on HarperCollins on uh, July 18th. And I explained my theories of angel investing, a little plug You're there. giving
1: the secrets away.
0: Yeah, because I'm only going to do two, 200 more investments. So I'm doing 200 more investments. And, and then, then you it. then you That's it. Sail off the sunset. Drop the microphone. That's it. That's I'm it. I'm done. Now it's up to you kids. uh, I I laid all my secrets out in the book. I'm going to do my next 200 investments and then I'm putting the microphone down, quite literally, um, because it's exhausting. I mean, what happens when you invest in a company is if you invest in 10 companies, um, let's make it 100 even. When you invest in 100 companies, one of them represents 90% of your returns, or 80, uh, and the next two represent the next 10%. And... Maybe 85 of the 100 result in zero, a donut, nothing. Uh, a bagel. You lose all your money. All of your money gets burned up in a pile. And then maybe five, maybe 10 of them return what you invested or a little bit more, but nothing noticeable. And the final five are 100% of your returns, 99% of your returns. And it's just a massive power law. Because you have to remember when you're doing angel investing right, you're investing in things that are risky and could change the world and nobody else believes in by definition because if people believed in them, the big companies would have already launched those products or services. So the reason Uber is such a unique company is because Google and Amazon and Volvo and other companies never had the gumption to do it. They never thought to do it. And that's what we see over and over again is the incumbents just don't see a market, a founder does. An angel makes a bet on that founder. And all the things that could go wrong, don't. And the one or two things that could go right, do.
1: So how worried are you about Uber right now, given its whole cascade oh. of controversies? And
0: Yeah, so we're sitting here at a time when Uber's had a, a number of challenges. It's been a rough year, um, a rough part, first half of the year. Is Travis the
1: man to stay in the job and right Of course,
0: the of course, yeah. Um, f- Travis is a fantastic founder. Uh, but all founders um, almost universally go through a crisis like this. With Uber, the crisis has been, I think, compressed, like three or four at the same time, which makes it feel more pronounced. Um, and, but the amazing thing about the business is the people who work there are super committed, and the performance has only accelerated. So to make it clear, they're doing better than ever despite these problems, which means if we get these problems solved and people can focus even more, the sky's the limit for that company. And so I'm not worried at all um, about the ultimate success of the business. I would be concerned uh, in any company um, where uh, there had been an issue of harassment, and I think everybody involved... You know, none of us want to see that exist in the world. And so we're all doubling down, tripling down, and extremely focused on resolving those issues from Travis to the board to the, you know, small investors like myself or the Kapors um, or Chris You know, everybody wants to see a good outcome, and we want to see the company focused on what's important. Companies get a a certain um, DNA to them, and I think the DNA for... Facebook has been a relentless focus in copying what other people do. For Uber, it was a fighter's mentality. Every city they went to, consumers loved them, but incumbents tried to stop them. And incumbents stopped them in very nasty ways, lawsuits, outdated regulations, protests. Literally giving consumers a lower-priced option required that Uber go to court in so many cities and face protests. and. I think a lot of teams would have crumbled under that pressure, and Uber knew that fighting for more transportation options, cheaper transportation options was a worthy fight, a great battle to fight, and they did that fight for all of us to benefit from, you know, and now we all benefit from here in San Francisco being able to travel anywhere, or New York, or London, or you can open up an app in almost any city in the world, major city, and get where you want to go and not get ripped off. And not be discriminated against because of the color of your skin or your destination. When I grew up in Brooklyn, we would literally have to sit in the back of a taxi, get in an argument with the driver about going to Brooklyn, and they wouldn't take you. And you'd have to threaten them, "I'm going to report you to the TLC." Um, and at night, they would roll the window down, put their off-duty sign, and say, "Where are you going?" I'd say, "I'm going to Brooklyn." They'd say, "They just speed off." And they did many uh, studies, and very sadly, if you were an African-American or Hispanic person in New York, you could not get a taxi. Um, now with Uber, you can't do that kind of discrimination, and you you have a level of safety that's never existed, And because they're tracking every fare minute by minute, second by second, and where it is. So if the person were to do something nefarious, there's a track record. In cabs, you, you wouldn't have that. You would have anonymity, and in cabs... Cab driver, when you go to another city, I'm not saying this ever happened in London or Paris, um, but it seemed to have happened every time I was there, I got taken on a quite a roundabout and, and got a huge you bill. Get t-
1: you get taken the long
0: way. You yeah. get taken the long way. Uh, and they're like, this is faster. And I'm like, it's faster and it's three times as much. Thank you. What an amazing <laughs> tour of the countryside, <laughs> the English countryside. Um, with, if, with Uber, if somebody tries those kind of shenanigans, you just hit reply and say, this wasn't the most direct route. And they go, you're right. We credit you back the difference. Like, this is wonderful. Or you leave something in a cab. I, I left my wallet in the cab the other day, got it back within five minutes. Like, it's just amazing. So, so many great things. But, you know, companies have challenges. As an investor, you have very little control. People have a bizarre belief that I can walk into the office at Uber or Thumbtack or Wealthfront and say my name at the front desk and that they would actually have my name in the directory. My name is not in the directory, my name's on the cap table, not in the directory. I don't get to come to any meetings. I don't have access to inside information. I do have the ear of the founder. I can talk to the founder. I talk to Travis on a regular basis. I talk to board members on a regular basis. And, you know, we we talk about what needs to happen to resolve the issues, right, to stay focused. And that's really what's happening now. We also live in a time of, you know, people are upset in the world about a lot of different issues. And consumers have a massive voice, so when you make a mistake in the world, the entire Twitter sphere knows it. Everybody really reacts strongly to it. Everybody has a voice. So when somebody does something that's considered unfair in the world or makes a comment that is inappropriate, you're going to pay a price. The outrage cycle is uh, extremely intense now. So making a mistake, you know, if you're one of the airlines that drags somebody off a flight, I guess that was United, like... Oh my god, you know, when you make a mistake, it's it's not just Everybody a little it it's not a little story go. on page 6 anymore. It's the front page. It's going to be investigated. So you have to really uh, as a founder and as a company these days really own your mistakes. People always should have owned their mistakes, but now with this level of scrutiny and the power that social media has and the power that individuals have, the power that video in everybody's pocket has, you have to really really consider what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and you really have to take ownership and you have to make substantial, substantive, real change when you make a mistake. You cannot, there's no window dressing anymore. And you know what? It's, it's good for society. It, it's a little uncomfortable when somebody makes a mistake and people try to ruin their lives and you have this mob mentality. But more often than not, people make mistakes. There's outrage. And we process it as a culture a little bit faster. Um, so we're, we're processing things pretty quickly right now. And I think, you know, it's it's going to take Uber a little bit of time, but I'm convinced, you know, when we get to the second half of this year, 2017, they'll have earned back people's trust through a series of very deliberate, very specific actions to really make the service and the corporate culture better. And listen, if they can build to the amount of revenue, the amount of rides, the the quality of the service, the low wait times, if they can solve all those problems... They can solve these problems, internal cultural problems here or there.
1: How much of that original 25k you get half of you would that? You get
0: half if that was the amount. Yeah, yeah.
1: So how much is oh, that worth? Is that nine, lot. eight know, figures uh, or nine, nine figures, figures? Low nine figures. Uh, nine figures.
0: Yeah, low nine figures. Yeah, yeah. Um, I if Uber were to go public, uh, I would be worth a lot of money. And you know, I also sold the company for 30 million, so I made some money already, and have many other investments that will make you know, single-digit millions or double-digit millions. I'm really the luckiest guy on the planet. I've gone lucky eight times now.
1: So uh, can we do a bit of role play? Don't sure. worry, this isn't going to get weird. But
0: Well, I was kind of <laughs> hoping it would get a little weird. I mean, what's the point of role playing?
1: Um, so I am... He just took
0: off his shirt. I'm just letting people know. He took off his shirt, and not it's true. leather not and sure. studs. <laughs> it's, not it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. We're not doing that kind of um... role playing. It so is San Francisco. It is. It is. Anything Things are different here. For an Englishman in San Francisco, it's a are. little bit shocking, isn't they it? Are.
1: No. Well, I'm actually not English. Okay. So I'm from the Bay Area, but I spent Got 13 it. years, and now I've come back.
0: Okay. So that's... Uh...
1: So we can talk about that, because I think there's some stark differences between when I left in 2002 and when I've come back. No doubt. But so say I am British, and I'm an entrepreneur, and I have an amazing idea.
0: Yeah. Get your ass over here. And let's, let's have coffee. I
1: buy a ticket. I mm. land in San Francisco International Airport. Yep. Now what?
0: Okay, so you want to do you have a product built or no product? I have an idea. You have an idea. All right, so uh, you and everybody else. The. Uh, How
1: do I not become a statistic? Of, yeah. Like, I got a great idea, and then you end up. So
0: if out. you have an idea, um, you have to take yourself out of the bucket of an idea person and into the bucket of an action person. The way to do that would be to build a prototype. Um, to have a small representation of what you want to exist in the world. So if it was Uber, and you, that was your intention to build it, having an app where you convinced a cab driver, uh, like a Lincoln Town Car driver, to put the app on his phone or her phone, and you said, hey, I'm doing a demo. Here's my idea. It's just going to be a call service over your phone. Um, can you keep it on for from uh, noon till 3 o'clock, and I'm going to do some demos in the next five days? And you just showed investors like me Hey, I have this app. It helps you call things. I'm planning to either sell it to cab companies or make my own service. Can I show you a demo? And a demo puts you in the bucket of the, you know, 1% of people who take an idea and execute on it. If you're not willing to take that jump, you will get zero respect here. Ideas are easy, execution is everything. So it's a very, uh, you know, we like to think it's a meritocracy. We know the world is not a perfect meritocracy. In fact, the world's incredibly unfair where you're born matters, who you're born to does matter. But the truth is, when it comes to this specific issue, idea versus execution, a person who looks a certain way with an idea versus a person who looks another way with, or a less traditional way with an actual product, the product person is going to win. Product always wins here. You got to have a product. Then once you have that product, having some of what we call traction. Traction means some level of engagement. So If you were to have a service, let's say, that helped people book hotel rooms at boutique hotels and got them great deals on those hotels, having repeat customers for that product, not 100 customers who used it once, but 10 customers who used it 10 times, you'd want the latter. So let's say you just said, I know a bunch of really cool boutique hotels, and they want to have hip people in them. We're going to send an email to... A 1,000 people who have more than a 1,000 followers on Instagram. We made a list, and we told them, if you get these people, they're going to agree to Instagram your hotel. And what do you think? Would you give them a room for $99? And we're going to call it the 99. And it was a pretty good idea now. (laughs) So you email, and the hotels give you $10 every time they book of the $99. And so and everybody else gets a $99 boutique hotel instead of paying 200 or 300 for the room. And they do it just in time. We have two rooms available next week. We have three rooms available the week after. So you get to book with one to two weeks out. It's an idea. When I say the idea, it sounds reasonable. But when you see, yes, we did it 10 times. And here is what our customer, you know, this Ambrose Hotel in London says. And here's what this hotel in Paris says. And this was Hotel in Nice says. Uh, and they just say, this is amazing. We We got you know, so many more photos on our Instagram feed. And the, it was amazing. Or we're going to book people who are photographers to come to your hotel. And in exchange for getting uh, buy one night, get one night free, they're going to just take a bunch of photos of your hotel and give them to you for free. And it is, so
1: where do I go? If I have, if I've done all that, or yeah. even if I just have an, I don't know, an idea on yep. a napkin, how do I raise money? Do I go to a venture capital firm or?
0: So, venture capitals tend to come after you have a lot of traction. So, let's say in this example of our hotel, $99 hotel for social media influencer idea, they would probably want to see you have um, a couple of hundred hotel nights booked and maybe 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 in monthly reoccurring revenue. Some pattern that they could put fuel behind and grow to 10,000 hotel nights a month. You'd want to go to Angels. And the way you would reach angels is you would try to network with founders, other fellow founders, and then hope to get advice from them. And say, hey, I'm a founder. Can I meet with you? I'd love to get advice. You don't ask for money. You ask for advice. Ask for advice, get money. Ask for money, get advice. So you'd ask them for advice. Then you'd say, hey, I noticed that you had Jason Calacanis or Chris Saka or Cyan Bannister as an angel on your Angelist profile, your Crunchbase profile, your Mattermark profile. Any chance you think they'd be interested in this? If I sent you an email, would you forward it on to them? And that's what happens. So the best way to meet the most powerful investors is to meet one of the founders they've invested in and have that founder be willing to send you along. So all day long, I get cold emails, hundreds a day. But every day I get two or three from a founder I've invested in or an investor I've co-invested in, probably about 10 of those a day. And when it's from certain people, if Ruloff from Sequoia or Chris Saka – Or someone to that effect says, you should meet with this person. David Sachs said, you know, who created Yammer and worked at PayPal, just recently emailed me and said, hey, I think this idea is worth looking at. I hit reply, put my assistant on it, and said, let's have coffee. I didn't read the idea. I didn't read the business plan. I didn't even think about that for a second. It's coming from David. David sends five items a year. If he's sending it, I'm meeting. And if I'm meeting with that person, I'm going to give them my full attention. So that's really... The name of the game is to get a referral.
1: So I I spoke with somebody uh, last month, and he said something which I thought was interesting. He said, now is the easiest time to start a company, but it's also the hardest time. Right. And it's kind of two sides of the same coin. Do you agree with that?
0: Yeah. We all know the cost of starting a company has gone down because you used to have to put up a server get a T1, an internet connection at your office, and you'd spend three to six months setting up your servers and just having the basic infrastructure and renting an office. Here we are sitting in WeWork where you can rent a desk for 500 bucks a month, not sign a lease, not hire a real estate broker. Walk up, pay as you go. Amazon Web Services, IBM's cloud, Microsoft's cloud, walk up, pay 50 bucks a month for your, your servers. So now we're in for 550 a month. Buy 100 customers a day for a dollar a click, for $100, $3,000 a month for marketing on Facebook or Google or Snapchat. So all of these little pieces to get you started are available as a service. Software as a service, customers as a service, office as a service, you get the idea. Um, And even developers as a service. So you can just go to Gigster, which I'm an investor in, and say, I want to get an app that does this, this, and this. They quote you a price, you get the app in two weeks. It's pretty amazing. So um, that is all true. But then when you start to scale, now you need a management team. You need 10 employees. You need five senior people. Those positions are super competitive. Those positions pay $150,000 a year or $100,000 a year. And Google's offering, and Facebook's offering those same people $300,000, dollars $500,000 a year with their stock options. And it's a sure bet. So now you're up against, come work for me in an under, under-resourced company for $100,000 k a year and... You know, one percent of the company, or go to Google and get a guaranteed four hundred thousand dollars a year. That person has to go to their spouse and say, "I can make four hundred guaranteed, or a hundred, and maybe make a million ten years from now." What should I do? And now you understand how tough it is. And then scaling gets hard because it requires more and more money. But yes, starting is easy, finishing is hard.
1: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're in an era now where you have Facebook, which has almost 2 billion Mm -hmm. people logging on each month. You have Google, which has a near monopoly on search advertising yep are the tech giants too big and powerful? are we have we got that to that point?
0: Yeah they're they're monopolies disguised as not monopolies. So what these monopolistic uh, companies do is they build they have a two pronged strategy to not looking like a monopoly. and it works here in the United States where we've bought and sold um, the um, different uh, agencies that would, you know, be like the EU's agency for looking at antitrust. The way you buy and sell those agencies is by infecting them with employees. So you've seen many Googlers go work in the Obama administration. And you've seen, uh, obviously, just an amazing amount of support for Hillary and Obama from tech companies with giving very, very large checks. I've been invited to lunch with these candidates, $35,000 lunches, you know, 50 times maybe. I've been invited to have lunch at barbecue at Obama's house with 10 people for 35k each like and it was all tech people right did you go of course not if I'm going to invest 35,000 dollars in something it's a startup I'm not not, really I hate politics not Not a barbecue with Obama all due respect I would go to a barbecue with Obama I would love to go to a barbecue I'd love to interview him for my podcast I would never pay to do that um I, I really just hate the fact that I can the fact that I can afford to pay for access makes me feel incredibly smarmy and I just don't like it um, I would like to get there on my merit, um, as naive as that is. So there's that part, which every industry has done. But here in Silicon Valley, we people like Google know exactly how Microsoft triggered this uh, antitrust. And they know exactly how to keep an anemic, incompetent company, like say Yahoo or for Facebook, it's Twitter, a company that, and I don't mean in a derogatory way, but just the performance of those companies have not been good. And those companies could have easily been bought by Google or by uh, Facebook. They specifically left them out there dangling as like a really weak, you know. Look, look, we have a competitor. We all know it because we know the bankers who buy and sell these things. And the bankers will tell you this is not being sold to these people. For obvious reasons, they do not want to trigger antitrust. Everybody watched what happened with Microsoft when they forced people to put Internet Explorer on their laptops and bundle it and all the other heavy handed stuff they did. So, what Google does instead is hey, we have 90% of the search market and 95% of the ads. Great. Let's not make it look like we do. Let's have Google Chrome as a moat. Let's have Android as a moat. Let's put our services at the top of Google search results. So they put their Yelp competitor, they put their Lyrics competitor, they put their Sports competitor, their Finance competitor ahead of the Wall Street Journal or ahead of Yelp or ahead of Zagat. They wound up buying Zagat. Um, and we put that content ahead of it. And the regular say, well, wait a second, I'm looking at it, and you have your local search results at the top. And Google says, that's not a search result. They said, but I searched for this cafe and it came up first. They say, oh, no, no, you don't understand. That's not a search result. But I went to Google. I searched. They said, "No, no, that's a one box. That's a that's a featured snippet." A one box. We move the search results down the page. The first organic search results the same. It's 600 pixels down the page, and things that are down the page get five percent as many clicks. And then Google said, "Oh no, Android's open source. Anybody can fork Android. But if you want to get the updates from Google, you have to include Chrome." You have to include YouTube. you got to include the calendar. you got to include Google authentication. Things they knew would make it impossible to not use Google because people would have to turn those defaults off. And they even did really clever things like when you turn on your browser, it asks you, would you like Google search?
1: To be your default. To
0: be your default. So they're asking you after they have a monopolistic position if you would want to use an inferior search product, right? So I think we all understand what's going on here. They built a monopoly. Google, and now Facebook, that doesn't look like a monopoly. They know exactly how to game U.S. regulators. They know how to buy them off from the inside and the top down. And they know how to build these services with massive moats around them. So Facebook bought the Instagram moat. They bought the WhatsApp moat. Yeah. And then they said, oh, Snapchat won't become a moat and protect our a social advertising, mobile advertising platform. Great. We will take their top feature and put it in all four apps Stories, ephemeral messaging—they just stole everything.
1: I've seen uh, there's a tweet um, that I saw that I thought was quite funny. Is that Snapchat has become Facebook's R&D department because they're very clear, they're very brazenly and very openly just copying their best stuff.
0: They're copying it like a student who takes another student's multiple choice test and doesn't even read the questions and just fills in the boxes. They don't even know what they're copying. They're just copying it so fast, um, which is. Unique In Silicon Valley, Facebook has become a bit of um, uh, an enigma because they're copying at such a level that anybody who goes to work at Facebook is working under the mandate of, we are coming to work every day to destroy Snapchat. Not we're trying to make the world smaller. We're not trying to make the world's best products. No,
1: no, no. You've got it wrong. They're connecting the world and building global communities.
0: No. They're stealing whatever, whatever Evan Spiegel came up with in the last 12 months, they're stealing. And you know what? I think it's going to be an Achilles heel for Facebook because anybody who's a true creative would never want to work in an environment where somebody like Zuckerberg is coming down and saying, I don't care what you think is hip or cool or interesting or that you want to build. What's in your mind is not important. What's important is what's in Evan Spiegel's mind. So I hired you. I gave you these RSUs. Shut up. Sit down and build what Evan Spiegel has built 12 months ago, 18 months ago. And if you don't like it, leave. Because we are here to copy Evan Spiegel pixel by pixel and win. And Evan he's Spiegel, smarter the CEO of Snapchat. Correct. And Do
1: you think Snapchat will survive? And I, now it's a public company?
0: It's hard to believe that they would be able to survive this level of onslaught. But two things give me hope. One, Evan Spiegel's come up with four very unique value propositions that all came out of his head, essentially. The spectacle glasses, stories, uh, which are the short video clips, the lenses on top of those stories, augmented reality essentially, making you into a kitten face, a rainbow puke, whatever, and then ephemeral messages. So these are four very unique, interesting features that now, of course, Facebook has copied and put into every product. Well, they didn't copy spectacles yet, but they did talk about AR lenses already, so they're well on their way. So if he can come up with those four and Five years of snapchat 's existence that 's one every twelve months or so. I think he 's going to come up with four more and also the thing that gives me hope is not just that Evan Spiegel is such a unique creative force in the world, I believe that now that they 're the underdog, the young people in the world can see and have made kind of a joke about facebook ceiling so it 's become kind of a meme right People are putting stories on everything so on twitter you 'll see people put stories on a box of cereal they 'll put stories you know, on a moleskin. They're like, moleskin, you know, your new pad with stories, like as if stories needs to be part of every product in the world. So young people are smart, cynical, and they vote with their attention. And I think it's reinforcing to young people who love Snapchat that Facebook is an, you know, unethical company and a company that you don't want to be involved with. It's your parents' company. It's a big corporate culture. Stay away. Instagram has pretty good cover as being a hip product. So Instagram's kind of challenging. But I do think Snap will survive.
1: Yeah, because it feels like Facebook has become a bit like um, what in the UK, like Saga Magazine. It's like what the older people are on.
0: All the young people will be on it. The young people, however, will not—the young people will stay on Facebook because they have to. It's like being on the phone book or having a phone connection, having a phone number— but they won't share their most intimate moments. They won't share the majority of their moments. They'll they'll share a graduation picture but they're not going to share the graduation party.
1: And you mentioned earlier Twitter. Yeah. You had an opportunity to invest in Twitter back in the day.
0: I did. <laughs> it up.
1: Why didn't you invest and I just now thought it and would... now here it is. Yeah. Do you think it can be fixed? It's a bit of a disaster. Well, yeah,
0: it can totally be fixed. Um, you but know first
1: go why so you you were there
0: I met the you know, I knew Evan from blogger days and F. Biz Ed Williams, F. And, F. Williams and, and Biz Stone and when they showed it to me I just thought, My God, this is so simplistic. You're taking a blog post and removing the post so it's just the subject line, so every idiot who has something to say but can't write is going to say it. Did you realize this is going to be a cacophony of idiots? Which, to a certain extent, it has become a cacophony of idiots, with a layer of brilliant people emerging who have mastered 140 characters as a communication medium, and it's become the default uh, platform for breaking news. And so, it is a wonderful. And hot, our
1: president, hot,
0: and now the president, it is a wonderful hot mess. The CEOs, you know, involved halftime. I love Jack. I think he's a smart cat, but you know, he can only do so much as a halftime CEO. The product you know, refuses to copy. We talked before about Facebook copying Snapchat. They refuse to copy anything. They refuse to add new features to the product. So there's no new features. And the best features that have ever been made were features that users came up with. Retweets were done by users. Hashtags were done by users. So uh, a lot of the best features were things that users came up with. Even photos were not part of the original plan, People had to make their own photo. TwitPic was like the original photo sharing for Twitter. So I think they need to give it back to the developers. I think they need a CEO who's willing to maybe, you know, be a little more expansive. And I do think that if they had uh, the ability to share revenue with people, that would be what I would do in my first day as CEO. I'd say anybody with a verified account can have their tweets sponsored. If your tweets are sponsored, when you tweet on the bottom, it will put an ad unit. That ad unit, you get 70% of the revenue, you get 30 So every tweet you do has an ad unit. If you see an ad you don't like, you can say, no more of that ad on my unit. So if somebody did a, an ad for coffee and you just don't like Starbucks, you could say, no more Starbucks, and it would give you Pete's coffee. But anybody could be sponsored. Anybody could make money. So a professional class of people could start to make 100 to, to $1,000 a month tweeting. If that happened, people would start investing in the platform.
1: Trump would make Tons of money.
0: Exactly. And he would have to turn it off. Um, No, he he just put it in a blind trust. Put it in a blind trust that he would control. Um, That his (laughs) his son would control while he's meeting with Kim Jong-un. Exactly. Uh, But it would be very interesting, I think. Very interesting aside, you notice Trump is still using his personal account. The reason he's using his personal account is because every Twitter follower you get is worth a dollar, at least. Maybe two. What do you mean? Um, if you were to build a million person following, you could monetize that through e-commerce, advertising, directing people to product. In other words, if you had a million followers, uh, I would offer you five thousand dollars to do a tweet for me if I was you know casper mattresses or a book coming out or a television show. I regularly get offered with a quarter million followers five or ten thousand dollars to tweet about stuff. Uh, so that opportunity would be there uh, if you could build that audience. So he's specifically not using POTUS, which goes back to the next president, because he doesn't want to build the follower account there. He wants to build the follower account on Donald Trump, Donald Day Trump. Real real Donald, real Donald, Donald Trump. Real Donald Trump. And so that is a clear violation. He's monetizing the presidency. And the fact that he's doing that should be investigated. I just don't think people are savvy enough to realize that well, there is a secondary a crime,
1: right? Unless if he's actually if he's actually taking people up on those no, offers. He's
0: acquiring an asset based off the backs of The American people. So I would argue that other people to acquire that asset, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. It would be, you know, it would be like him putting the Trump.com logo on the front of the White House. He's basically using the platform to build an asset that he can deploy later. So he may not be building that brand now. Uh, He might be not exploiting that brand now, but certainly he will exploit it later. So if he turned off that account and got rid of the followers that he gained as president, sure. I would think that would be reasonable. But if he keeps those followers after the presidency, uh, which certainly he will, um, yeah, that would feel to me like he was stealing from the American people. So
1: I lived here, I grew up in San Jose, I lived in San Francisco, and then I left 15 years ago. And I was covering Silicon Valley, then the first yeah. dot com, boom. Now, 15 years later, I come back and it's, it's the kind of the bubble is bigger. Are we in a bubble?
0: No. uh, What you experienced back then was people understood the potential of the Internet, but the potential had not been realized yet. No one could deliver on their potential Nobody could deliver on it because we just didn't have broadband, we didn't have credit cards on the Internet, and we didn't have this infrastructure we talked about earlier. Now, um, if you look at the the top private companies like uh, previously Snap, but Uber, Airbnb, uh, and some of the other ones— You know, they're really printing money. They they have just money printing machines and they are global companies operating in hundreds of cities and eventually they'll be in thousands. And this is before they even go public. So by the time a company goes public, most of the growth has happened. And there'll still be growth left, but I would say half the growth has happened. So that's healthy in a way. We don't have the public markets going crazy on potential. Some people would argue Snapchat. Maybe it's too enthusiastic. Maybe the company's worth $10 billion or maybe $15 billion. If it does a billion dollars this share, 15 times forward looking revenue would be a juicy valuation. It's worth 30 So it's probably tw- valued at twice what it should be um, in some people's minds. But I do think it speaks to the potential of the individual running it. So it's not a bubble right now. Um, well,
1: we, I know we're running out of time, but I want to talk about on that point about the bubble and whether the mm-hmm. one exists and future potential. Yep. Tesla Incredible. is worth more than Ford. Yeah is worth more than GM. Right. Last year, it produced about 80,000 cars. GM produced 10 million.
0: So here's the thing. It's not a car company. It's an energy company. And so cars are probably, you know, the entry point for most people to get into the Tesla ecosystem. But now with the tiles that they are providing from SolarCity that look like actual real roof tiles and the battery packs, you're going to see them solve energy and the energy grid problem. We just can't possibly build uh, enough nuclear reactors uh, or coal reactors, God forbid, uh, coal plants, uh, and people are decommissioning the nuclear reactors they have in large part in Europe and here in the United States. We haven't built one for a really long time, since the 70s. So what Tesla really is going to be is an energy company. They're, everybody will have a Tesla product, whether it's a car, whether it's the power wall, the battery pack, or the solar. And in most cases, people are going to have two or three of those. It's going to just become untenable for us to grow the grid in any modern society, especially places that are modernizing like China and India, without this kind of distributed power system. So, when you think about it, think about it as an energy company. You bought one of the first Teslas, right? I have number 16 of the Roadster, I have serial number one of the Model S, and I have year one of the Model X, and I'll have the how How'd you get the
1: first Model S?
0: Well, Elon and I are friends uh, for a long time. Before he t- took orders for it, he showed me the clay models of the car because I had asked him privately, What do you think you're going to charge for it? And he said, About 50K. I think I can get it done for 50 or 60K. So Tesla was going out of business. They were almost out of money during the financial crisis. And I just I felt bad for Elon. And I wrote him a letter and I just said, Looks like a great car. I'll take two. And I sent him two 50K checks. A year later, I got an email Your reservation number, serial number 001. And, oh, oh, 73. So I gave the 73 card to my friend Sky Dayton because he was breaking my chops about getting an early one. And so then I took number one for myself, and I emailed Elon, and I said, I really don't need to have number one. And he says, I want you to have it. And I thought that was very touching. He's a very loyal guy. You yeah. still have it? I still have it. I still drive it. But it's got 25,000 miles on it. So I have to. Now that Tesla is so successful, it's kind of like owning the first Ferrari.
1: You have like the iPhone. Yeah, like the iPhone 1.
0: Yeah, I have to. I'm going to give it to a museum. I want to give it to like the Smithsonian or something.
1: I'm in the um, market for a car if you just kind of drink it. You could take Tesla number one. No, I just feel like an <laughs> idiot driving it. If the thing crashes, I'm going to be
0: feeling, I'm going to be crestfallen.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time.
0: Uh, it's been great. And uh, if you are an entrepreneur in London and you're here for more coffee, jason at calicanus.com. First name at last name. Thanks very much. Cheers.
1: So that's it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Danny in the Valley. I'd like to thank Jason Kalkanis. It was an experience. And uh, if you like what you're hearing, please take a moment and go to iTunes to give a rating and review. It does help the cause. Or you can read me every Sunday in the newspaper. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on, settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less and similar brands.